1874, the British government passed a series of laws called the Regulation of Public Worship. What? A lot of people cared an awful lot about church back then. True. On one side, people wanted more ritual and ceremony. Order. On the other side, they wanted mostly none. Yeah. In the midst of the battle, one minister, a rector in London at a church called St. George in the East, had stopped a practice whereby people who volunteered in church services could avail themselves of liquor from the rector's cupboard before and after the service. The Reverend King closed the cupboard. We have opened it again. Welcome to the rector's cupboard. Order. Well, welcome to the rector's cupboard. This is series two, episode three. And this is a special host episode, so maybe it'll be episode three, maybe we'll put it somewhere else in the order, but it doesn't really matter. Could work. Uh, we are here at Woods Distillery in North Vancouver, where we have recorded other episodes before, and uh, we're pleased to be doing our tasting here. We have at the mics, this is, a, as I say, a hosts-only episode. We're no interesting kinda, guests. No interesting guests, just us. We're going to talk about... Just interesting hosts. Just a lot... Well, just hosts. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to talk about some stuff, and for some reason, like... We we have, this is how this is what happened, right? We hope people will We're listen. Sitting around at lunchtime or whatever, having a conversation, and somebody says, "You know, this pe- other people will want to hear this." this. Yeah. So we're kind of thinking that now, maybe. Uh, but we're going to start off with the tasting. We are. Yes. Okay. Every time, I think every time we've done a Rector's Covered episode, we have a tasting. And here at Woods Distillery, which is a distillery, it is uh, fantastic we, uh, distillery. We're having that tasting, and we have right on the mic already, Ken Bell. Our cupboard master, cupboard host. Thank you. So, Ken, tell us about where we are and what we are tasting. All right. We are, as Todd said, at Woods uh, Distillery. They've been open for about two and a half years. So, summer of 2017, they opened up. And the owner and uh, operator and grand brewer of all things distilled, Grand Distiller. Grand Distiller. Grand Distiller. Mm-hmm. The Sounds Master like Distiller. Is that actually the That's title? That's Dostoevsky. I think we'll go with Master Distiller. The Grand Distiller. Inquisitor. <laughs> rewritten the Grand Anyways, Distiller. his name is... His name, he, wonderful. there was no way he was not going to do what he did, what he's doing in his life because his name is Fabio Martini. Fabio Martini. So I don't know how else you were going to, that's his real name. And I don't know what else you were going to do with your life when your name is that. So he uh, now owns and operates and and distills here. And uh, they make a lot of different things. Gin, Amaro, Limoncello. Their gin. Their gin gin is fantastic. fantastic. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have a very soft spot Limoncello is good. It's so good. They have a barrel aged Amaro. But... We are drinking t- right now, uh, one of our la- uh, previous episodes, we had a Nacino, which is a, an Italian liqueur made with walnuts, green, wa- well, black walnuts, but when they're green. Unripe. Unripe, yes. when they're still green. And Fabio has made for us a uh, Nacino sour. Mm. And so it's uh, got cheers. some... Cheers, one and all. Mm-hmm. Uh, sugar oh, water cheers. in there. and Sugar water. Not sugar water. What's that called? Simple, syrup. simple, simple syrup. syrup. and some lemon. That, that's and so weird because uh, that used to be a nickname whites. for you, for me. Sugar water. <laughs> but oh, and, uh, it is absolutely it is so delicious. Mm. It's and, very tasty. Uh, as, as our Rick, our producer and chief engineer said, Rick had I some. don't think I could just sip this. <laughs> it feels like something it, I should chug back. Very so it's very smooth. Dan- mm-hmm. So to a great conversation yeah, of hosts, cheers. let's so enjoy Ken, our time here. If you were going here. to um, procure some of the products from this fine establishment, how would we go about doing that? Uh, we'll call Fabio back in and we'll get... So if a listener wanted oh, for to listener, get... Uh, you can go online to... Uh, 
Woods uh, Distillery. Woods dot Distillery something. in dot yeah. uh, Vancouver. Wood Spirit Co. I think. Uh, oh, it's okay. a wood. Yeah, the Wood Spirit Co. Wood Spirit and uh, Co. you can order it, and they'll ship it to you. It's really if good. you can't find it at your own uh, liquor store, private liquor store, or wherever it is you buy your liquor. Fantastic. So yeah, Thank that's you. how okay, you so do it. So we'll uh, just dive into our conversation here. Um, we've done now six, seven. This is our eighth episode. I do about believe these. so. Yes. And so we thought we'd, you know, nice occasion to just gather as some people who have been hosts and just talk about a few of the things that we've heard and um, talk about some things that are apparently silly, but maybe not as silly as, as they might at first appear. Um, so I thought of starting with just a couple of quotes from from uh, recent podcasts. Well, I'll do this one because this wasn't actually from from a podcast guest. It's something that some of us have said and Rick, uh, producer Rick, uh, reference this in a conversation after a podcast recently. This concept that you'll do the most damage in your life when you're right. Uh, you do most damage in your life when you're right. This, we talked with David Go about things like this, but uh, what do you think about that? I know I do more damage when I'm right. It just doesn't come up very doesn't often. Doesn't happen very often. No. <laughs> No. So well, I think f- it does for me all the time. <laughs> so we you know. Do, so you do a lot of damage. We know. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's because we have this, I need to make my, we, we miss the person. So we, we, we get into these things where we're, we're more interested in proving our point and in making sure that people know that we're right or we have the right opinion. And we do this in theology all the time. We do this in church all the time. That we're so... Um, I was I was at a church meeting I won't say where uh, recently where there was a guest speaker coming in and I knew the person he was a professor that I had had and he said you know he's been going to a couple of different churches over the years and he said the only thing that's important to me now is is orthodoxy and orthopraxis and I I just sort of thought so the most important so thing to you right, in a church being right is being in terms right. of doctrine and being right in terms of living right no no understanding of of personhood and of course orthodoxy to an extent is in the eye of the beholder Every, no one goes out of their way to say i th- i have the wrong orthodoxy and mm-hmm. i'm really proud of it i mean a, a, people in church of course they're doing it because they think they're right so you can think about it in terms of religion or kind yep. of worldview or something like that well, so occasionally in that. a marriage in terms well, of many like yeah sort of ra- any relationships rightness, rightness and wrongness are uh, open to interpretations in so right. many things sure so if you're just sort of sticking to your guns to be right in any context, be it a faith context or a relationship, then you're sort of distancing yourself from that person. Right. You're, you're creating space more than you're sure, you can, decreasing you, space. You can think about it if you're fighting with a friend or with uh, a spouse, or you can think of it in parenting examples. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are right, uh, what kind of I'm saying with this quote is, if you're right, you're open to do tremendous, tremendous damage. You, you could because be, of this yeah. You could, you could actually, you you could be correct if you're about whatever it is that you're talking about. But if what you're going to insist on is how correct that you are, then I think that that's right. damaging. Well, yeah, and you can see this in in all sorts of things. Um, but y- when you have this sort of mentality of wanting, like the most important thing being that you're right, you you get the ends are justifying the means and you can excuse all sorts of terrible behavior because you're like you you can see this in churches and stuff where they're like well we need to get make sure everybody is behaving properly and so they will just it doesn't even have to be church you see that everywhere everywhere where people are just willing to just steamroll people in order to get their desired end and they're like the the initial um 
catalyst is can even be like very very laudable but but you got to care about because there's the something people about, you don't sort of step on their backs to get to being point b right that is has something to do at, at oftentimes with winning yes mm-hmm. winning an argument or winning kind of a you know you've been hurt yeah oftentimes you can do this if you're in the position of someone's hurt you so that carries with it a a modicum of some kind of power, right? Because mm-hmm. you're now the wronged one. Um, I was just reading an article this morning about Donald Trump. So we'll go there. Who? We're talking about who, what might upset people about this podcast. <laughs> I can't God. imagine that this would be it. but um, And it was by Frank Bruni, New York Times. And he was, the, he was casting Trump as kind of the whiner-in-chief. He was just saying that Trump always portrays himself as the victim and mm-hmm. the one who has been wronged. So he's always right, and he, he said this is, this is his take on him. In his mind, he's always right, but he's always wronged. Yes. Like ED. Yeah. And yeah. like wronged, and that gives him this... Well, gives him uh, license to kind of do whatever. Yeah, and I, I think that, <coughs> mm-hmm. you know, for me as a, as a dad, two kids who are now, well, they're adults now, but you, kind of thing that can bring back emotion again, right, where you think, oh, um, I did tremendous damage at times, potentially when I was in the right and maybe they were in the wrong, but how I did things uh, was... So I think it's an interesting quote, something to hang on to. Well, I would, the, the thing that it always makes me think of is, and we've talked about this before in other conversations, there's, there's a difference between being right and being righteous for a religious term. And the story that always comes to mind, and this is something that uh, um, Bruner, I can't remember his first name, he wrote a commentary on the book of Matthew, and it's one of my favorite commentaries on that. Frederick Bruner. Frederick Bruner, that's it. And he, he's looking at the story of Mary and Joseph, and, and Joseph had the ability to be right, which was basically to ditch Mary. Right. And he chooses to be righteous, and that's what scripture describes him as, is righteous. Right. And what mm. Bruner talks about in his commentaries, he says the definition of righteousness, or being righteous, is the willingness to bear the guilt and sin of another, even at great cost to yourself. Yeah, I was just going to say, that, righteousness always so costs parenting. you. Think of that definition yeah. sticks with the willingness to bear the guilt and sin of another, even at a cost to yourself. That, in a human relationship, in a marriage relationship, in the way we look at the other, we've talked about the dehumanization in other episodes, um, that ought to be part of our goal, is, is that, that act of righteousness, not rightness. Yeah, I, I was, I'm just thinking that, as we have this conversation too, that some of you guys are um, closer to like organized religious circles, religious mm-hmm. circles. or disorganized um, or, if you've or, been or doing lately. Like, uh, which I you used to work for the Lord. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> there was a time. Yeah, um, but uh, for myself, having been kind of outside that sphere for a number of years, this whole dialogue about right and wrong—it's it's just not something that, that I've talked about for a long time. And it's not that things aren't right or wrong, but just sort of that divining of, you know, is it right? Is it wrong? It's not the compelling it's question. N- it's not really uh, a huge part of my but life. Go, but it, go on Facebook and look yeah. at people doing and talking about the environment or talking about this right or that yeah. right. I mean, there's a lot of right and wrong yes. within yeah. that. Yeah. But I, think but I hear social. what you're saying, not in the kind of like that. Yeah. Because I, I, I do think that sort of that, that rightness and wrongness is, is is about stopping conversations mm. yes. because we all yes. we know it doesn't open at, dialogue yeah it's exactly it, it stops dialogue mm-hmm. and the people well, and that's the intention yeah. a lot of the time yeah is um is that you have someone who who knows that they have the correct perspective on this and th- they're not wanting to have a discussion with you because they're right mm-hmm. and you're wrong 
And, and so, yeah, you want to stop that dialogue because the most important thing is that you end on them knowing that you yeah. have the right thing. It's not right. like it's, it's something, and it's really easy to fall into. You have to, I know that I have to intentionally do the opposite and I'll find it most like in dealing with my kids because trying to tell my toddler who it's hard to tell whether sometimes he's really intending for something like it, it, but I don't want to yell at him or scare him, but there's times where I'm like, dude, what you're doing is dangerous. And he mm-hmm. just looks at me and I'm like, yeah, you don't understand that. And so in, there's so many ways outside of church that, that how you treat that person matters. And even like my daughter will talk to it, us about stuff like when, when we've gotten upset with her for, for certain things and she'll, she'll be, I'm like, Isabel, I hope that you know, you, you're remembering that I love you. And she's like, I know that, but it doesn't feel like that right now. And sometimes that feels a little manipulative when she says that. <laughs> but I think that there, there's something to be said where... Where did she learn that I'm going to use that. Um, <laughs> but, she but she struggles with like the, that sometimes how we engage with her, even though we're telling her constantly, I love you, I love you, I love you, that she's like, but this doesn't feel like that to me and, th- and that's hard for for hmm. someone who has a cognitive development of an eight-year-old because she's eight pretty good though her cognitive development the, mm-hmm. I, so one more quote is get a little more religious but okay. I, mean, I have the word theology in there but i you could substitute worldview um so i i wouldn't want to maintain only relig- religious kind of context but i'll keep that word there and this is a quote we talked about on the david goa episode this is a quote from his father who was um, like evangelical Lutheran, I think. No, yeah. pietist. I can't remember. Some kind of... Scandinavian pietist. On the Canadian prairies. And David yeah. has obviously, in talking to him, a very high regard for his father and, and his memory. Um, but his father often said, David told us, that most people are better than their theology. So the quote that has stuck with me. Or you put it to most people are better than their worldview if they have a negative or a dark worldview. What do you think about that? Well, going back to theology, do you think that he means most people are better than like their understanding of their traditions theology, or right, or, or like they, the professed? Because I, I do, yeah, I do think that um, we sort of come up with our own ways of understanding <coughs> theology okay. that aren't necessarily theologically sure. accurate, sure. and yet whole denominations or church systems can be based on these inaccurate theologies. Yeah. So, do you think that he means that most people are better than? What right, they, the what actual they thing, or the actual values. thing, or the, I think I think what he means is that. So I'll give it an example in a, in a person without naming her, because some of us here know her, someone who I love when I was working at uh, church, um, and knew her for years and years and years and years, and she's a lovely person. Um, she has what I would say the worst theology I've ever known in my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, she listens to stuff that is hateful, that mm-hmm. is fearful, mm-hmm. that you know, fills her time watching internet, uh, like internet preachers who are just, you know, everything outside of kind of a particular worldview is dangerous, damaging, horrible, kind of, um, and, and like her theology just is absolutely terrible. She's much better than that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, and actually she's, she'd be much better than that, including if she was meeting someone from one of those groups that her theology castigates. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? If they happened upon mm-hmm. her in the neighborhood or something mm-hmm. like that. So there's a lot of like, all these people are terrible, a particular religious group mm-hmm. or a particular political persuasion or whatever. But then when it comes down to it, mm-hmm. on the ground level, 
She's better than that. Yeah. She's a lovely person. I mean, I, I guess think that's where he I guess is. the flip side of that would mean that most people are bound by their theology. Right? If they're better than it, then they're restricted by it. They're held back by Yes. I, I completely you know, think that mm, in the case fr- of my friend who I just yeah, told you about. A friend of if mine she could drop that fearful yeah. theology. She's <coughs> held back. Okay. A yeah. friend of mine the other day was just telling me about uh, he was talking a bit about when he came out as gay to an evangelical friend of his. Mm-hmm. And she said, I um I I I want you to know I love you. Um, but I think that that's a sin, right? And she, but she said, but uh, but it doesn't change the way I feel about but you. But why the second part? You think? Well, and that's what I thought. <laughs> you know, we're just talking why about you because I need to be right. She needs to say that. Yeah, yeah, we're talking about sort of that, that boundness. You know, like she's in her soul, in her spirit, she is better than her theology. I think right. because but she still feels that's, she that's has the first to say part, this. right? But mm-hmm. then she knows that the rules are so she has to throw the rule in at the end. Um, so she, which is limited. You, so I don't want to, you know, put words in your mouth. But it seems to be what you're presenting to us is that the theology is limiting her from loving as much as she could. Yeah, she's it, it's holding her. She's bound by her. Now theology. she might say, and the theology might say, well, no, the love is that you don't give your approval or something like this, right? Like if you do, then you're not truly loving or something. We've all heard. These well, I think what I sort of hear in that statement is is a longing that most people okay. are better than, the, than their theology. Yeah. Wouldn't be wouldn't it be great if they could just be that good? You know, right. and they weren't held back. Yeah, it's um, so. I think it's a, a nice, a good quote that is. Uh, so, we'll uh, we'll carry on now. We're going to move right away to the silly stuff. Is that? Oh, okay? oh that's great. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. Yes. We've all watched this. Um, <laughs> we are. Why right did you now, make me watch this? I feel like you did this to make it painful for me to cook. Well, painful the, for you to go. So, okay, no. we've got to tell people what we're talking about. Yes, okay. I'm sorry, we do need context. We are sitting in January 2020. Doesn't yeah. it sound great to say 2020? <laughs> yeah. Um, Sounds like a TV show. 2020. It was a TV show. Barbara Walters. Barbara Walters. 2020. Oh, right. Yeah. 2020. Yeah. 2020. Um, the, so we're January 2020. Yeah. 2020. Yeah. And Happy birthday, Todd. Thank you. <laughs> and just two days ago, something like that, released on YouTube... Was a video yes. mm-hmm. called Cooking with Paris. Yes. Now you've all watched it's it. It's a masterpiece. Okay. It Apparently is you and like oh. three million other people have watched it. This is the intro music. Which sounds a little porny. <laughs> <laughs> I think we could agree. It sounds like all the porn music yeah, I've ever heard. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> sounds oh, like yeah. the intro to oh, video. Yeah. <laughs> Not all porn has this video. People who do know know. I think it's on purpose. Ever since I was Do a little they? girl, I would always go with my mom in the kitchen and she would cook these amazing pastas and lasagnas and Those are the same thing. Thanksgiving yeah. and Christmas dinner, just my entire so life. Nice. I just remember sitting on the counter and watching my mom cook and also baking Super and cooking judgy. with her. This is my little assistant today. Well, she has a dog <laughs> with her. But he doesn't assist her. Do you think Actually, she was yeah. holding a dog cook and for her mom? Because they came I, from a fairly wealthy family. I'm just wondering how... I, I don't know. Okay. So I, who, does anybody want to describe the video to us? I it would depends what perspective you, you'd like. No, no without editorial, what is happening I in the video? Okay. Paris, uh, oh, yeah, go ahead. Okay. Yeah, Paris, Paris yeah, is um, showing us... You're the most judgy of all the four of us. So really? You more judgy than me. We are handing it off to one wow. of the kids. One of the kinder ones? Um... Paris is, is making lasagna, apparently her family recipe for lasagna that she often made with her mother. Hilton being an Italian. Yes, yes. And so she walks you through the whole process of 
the noodles and it, it, it kind of seems like maybe they were a little less than prepared for this video, which might've been intentional because she doesn't seem to have all the cooking utensils that she would like or know where things are. Well, she doesn't have them all. No. Yeah. Well, she does seem to come up with She's very she like yes, she's no. She's resourceful. Yeah. So she I mean, you, she walks you through the snow shovel to stir the meat was a bit. <laughs> yeah, I was like I was like, could you find a larger <laughs> flipper there? It was one of my favorite lines was, oh, these spoons are brutal. <laughs> <laughs> I think those like, spatulas oh, were all about scale. You have that? You like to make her look like even smaller. Steam. So I would recommend getting those because it's way easier. You just literally. Oh, that's the noodles. She recommends okay, getting the, the ones oven. that you don't have to steam. Have to. By she that, she means boiled. She's saying it'd be better to get a pre-cooked lasagna. Pretty much. Her voice, I could fall asleep to that. just like sort of white noise. Yeah. Well, I mean, like there, there's part where as somebody who enjoys cooking, I think yeah. firstly the, the most offensive part of it is the gloves she wears. She wears these like biking, biking gloves. gloves. They're I chef thought, gloves. I liked them. No. She calls them chef gloves. I, I don't <laughs> think that a chef would ever wear those. Um... But I'm like, dude, that's so unsanitary. First, she picks up her dog. Then she doesn't wash her hands. And then she's you taking can't wash out... wash them in the chef gloves. Exactly. And then she's taking out raw meat and grating mozzarella. And I'm just like, all the food safe stuff is like pinging in my head. And I'm like, dude, I hope nobody eats that lasagna. Which, frankly, it doesn't even look like somebody does at the end. She takes it out and was pretty much like, ta-da. And then she's like, what would you like me to make next week? Put it in the comments. Oh, see, I hear oh. some judgment in the voice, <laughs> <Yes>. do you? <laughs> Like I said, yeah. I am Gigi. <laughs> I, think okay. there's a, I think there's a certain genius. I mean, she do does end up with a lasagna at the she end. Does. I, I would well, like somebody, to give her credit Rick, for that. Rick's, what you somebody does. Rick? I'm not sure Rick, she does. Rick's pushing something much. up here. It's way too much. I would definitely recommend getting shredded mozzarella. Oh, yes, she struggles <laughs> with the shredded yeah. mozzarella. She doesn't like grating cheese. She does but who does? There's about 60 who seconds of airtime time devoted to discussing how she should have got shredded mozzarella. Yes. So, I mean, all in all, if you want to make a lasagna... I guess technically this can kind of get you from point A to point B, but I don't think that's the, the was, point so of the, the episode. It was a four-ingredient lasagna. It had noodles. It had pre, pre-made pasta sauce. It no. had meat. Ground beef. Yeah, ground beef. Ricotta, and had, mozzarella. Yeah, okay, Five. Two, di- two different types of cheese. That was, yeah, two different types. And a ton of salt. So, so I would argue salt is that was an accident. The salt scene that is a, worth the whole thing. <laughs> that was just full-on simple life. That's just like a simple life excerpt. It was, but what was brilliant about that was she, she lost all the salt inside the meat. It was amazing. And then after that, added more, more salt. salt. <laughs> Well, didn't she Later. dab it off with a paper towel? Yes, a wet yeah, paper a towel. So, so, yeah, that's a, that's a technique. The, okay, so here's, here's, here's where we're going to make ourselves feel bad a little bit. Because okay. we're all talking no? about, in a very recent episode, not dehumanizing anyone. Okay, no, no, no. My, well, no, I had some human... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I... First of all, I, I don't falter for making these sorts no. of videos. She's not hurting anybody. No. She's, aside from maybe promoting some slightly sketchy food safe Producer Rick sort called of things. It, and it was the best review I've heard so far, and I've read a lot of reviews on this uh, video. No, I haven't. But he said it was very watchable. Yeah. And it is watchable. It is. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's 15 minutes long. It's a little painful to watch at some point. For you. It's it less was. dangerous than Gwyneth Paltrow and some of her mm. stuff. Yes. Well, and that's the thing that I'm like, uh, if she wants to make innocuous cooking videos where she shows people how to make, yeah. in my opinion, kind of simple recipes, I, I don't have a problem so with that. So go even further and I'll ask you a question. What's brilliant about it? Well, I if, think there's yeah. a brilliance. I think there's a brilliance. Yes. In, in my life, I've had a series of careers. Um, oh, excuse me. Don't fool me. I've had a series of uh, a series of jobs, and I've always made a joke that I have jobs um, that I'm just getting paid to be me because I haven't necessarily had training for these jobs. <laughs> but for some for one way or another, I sort of fall into these different jobs that I've had, and they've been great and neat chapters of life. 
And she's kind of doing the same thing. She's getting paid to oh, yeah. be her. You know, she's just being herself and she's inviting people to be a part of what she's doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's great. Oh, yeah. So I, that's kind of like, it's I feel like it's not hurting anybody. Yeah. No, I might get my cooking tutorials from a different source, but I mean, you're not... Do you I don't think, think most of the people watching this are looking for a cooking no. tutorial. I think no. they're looking so for I entertainment. Saying, I am saying this. That can, and there's a brilliancy can, in that. Cupboard can go ahead. Uh, I was thinking, I was disturbed watching it um, uh, the, the, yesterday when we, when we were forced to watch it because it just, it got my hackles like up. It was, but last night, as I was not able to fall asleep, I was thinking about the video and I realized what I think I appreciate about it is it is actually making fun of the cooking shows on like HGTV and the cooking channel and all that where everything is pristine everything is prepped everything is set out and you've just made a meal for 18 people and there's no dishes anywhere left in the kitchen and yeah. everything always works out perfect yeah the kitchen and was a bit of a really, disaster at the end yeah it was so in that sense it's a bit more realistic it's it was like anyone else kind of going I can make my own YouTube video of how to make a lasagna and so there it was a bit of poking fun at the professional chefs that all appear on HGTV. And then when you go to make their recipes, you're like, oh, mine didn't turn out anything like that. I'm pretty confident anyone in this room could make a lasagna that looked at least as good and at least as tasty as I thought she did a pretty good job. I I, I felt like she'd done that before. She knew how to make that lasagna. Okay, let's hear it. Sorry, I'm doing a cooking tutorial and I have like like none of the correct things. I don't know what this is, but it looks like it will work. <laughs> yeah. So this, and then you get an egg. She also has one egg to a lot of ricotta. It's As someone who's egg. made, you know, lasagna before, I go, I feel like you need so more egg than that. There's 18 cartons of ricotta and one egg. Something like that. It's a big lasagna. That would feed a lot of people. Yeah. The brilliance And it is, only baked for 40 the minutes. The absolute brilliance is, now some of this is historical because of who she is, but the brilliance is that all these people have watched this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, almost three million views in just a few days. It's people incredible. are finding this entertaining. There's actually some good lessons here if you want to invite people into something. Like she's, maybe she's, we should do a cooking she's making tutorial. Lasagna. Like she's making something we've all mm-hmm. yep. experienced. It's not some incredibly fancy, right. you know, coco van or something. Uh, that's my French for the day. Um, well done. Thank Check. you. But uh, maybe, yeah. she's not making something that's not approachable. She's making something nope. approachable. She's do we need to do this to, to get uh, more people to? I think we do. Follow us. Nobody is feeling bad about how they cook. No. 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 Right? Because I'm yeah. pretty sure that everyone can look at that and go, There's no I punching can do down. that. Producer Rick just said, that's, that's such a good point. There's no punching down, no. right? No. That yeah. even we are, like, it's so easy to fall yeah. to there, right? Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. We are, she's Who would have thought? And she's just presenting it's herself as, as herself. This is what we've always seen of her. Yeah. Maybe, maybe a lesson in there for some of the... Uh, Right, people needing to be right and yeah. churchy people to, to take a lesson from. Yeah. If only other people thought so well uh, like we do. Would Paris <laughs> come cook with us? Could we, in, could we extend an invitation somehow? Maybe she yeah. maybe come, come cook, cook with, with us. us. Oh, come man, drink with that'd us. That'd be great. Yeah. Make, a, make a cocktail. <laughs> There's nobody else in the kitchen other than yeah. the dog. Yeah. Isn't the same no. dog all the way through? There's a camera There's camera, guy, there's camera yes. people, yeah. obviously. Yeah. Well, no, you else. actually saw some of the camera people. Oh, did we see the camera? Yeah, when you turn around from the other side. Can we play us out with a couple little audios of that? Because we're going to get super serious in a minute. All right. So just like flip it, kind of make it tan. Make it tan. What is tan? This Sorry. Is, this that is the cooking. browning That's the meat? Yeah. Usually I should be the bigger tan. tan but oh my gosh, I didn't catch that when I saw it. 
This fell on the side. It's disgusting. <laughs> Again with this. I'm not sure of the exact measurement of what you're supposed to do. I don't think she used any measurements of anything so, like, other than this is one package of I this. I love it. No. I love it. That, that made me feel like she had done it before oh, no. when she's saying, I'm not oh, no. sure of the exact oh, no. That's how I cook. Too much. a bit of this. I like that. that. Oh, no, it's too much. This is just assault. I'm my towel trick again. So we're now getting serious? Okay. Yeah, we're going to go okay. serious. Well, Paris is still <laughs> talking. Okay, I think yeah. that we need to take like a deep breath. We're going to go like extremely serious, like psychotically serious. Oh. And I, <laughs> I don't. Well, so the listeners oh, join us, okay, or you can yes. just get through this part. Minutes, just yeah, for a few minutes. No, no, it's good okay? because yeah. we want to offend the right people. So, um, some of you heard this story recently. I, now, right away, I'm ignorant of a lot of things in this, so I'm just using the general kind of strokes to to describe it. But there was a case of a little girl named Olive who died in, I guess, in California. There's a church that's actually started kind of as a musical group, quite charismatic, and, uh, called Bethel Music. It's really popular. 9,000 people go to the church, but the music is done all over the world and stuff. And uh, this little girl died, and she is was the daughter of one of the main singers. Uh, that She's part of that family. And again, I could be getting parts of this wrong, but... Uh, but basically what happened was they believe, because they believe in miracles and healing and whatever, which again, m many people do in the world, and, but they believe that she would be raised from the dead, that this girl had died, this wasn't like a near-death experience. And so they put out on Facebook and everywhere else uh, that, will you pray with us for little Olive to be raised from the dead? And it got, you know, and also they were accepting money. Donations, mm -hmm. yeah which is another kind of mm -hmm. layer. Mm -hmm. um, and and uh, all of, so one day after, two, day after, two days after, three days after, four days after, there was some correspondence that, again, I, I think if you want to know more about this, like look into what was actually said and, and done. But I think my understanding is that like day seven, they finally gave up. Um, well, we could start off, first of all, what do you think about that in general? Where should we be compassionate? Where do we say, okay... That's just hurtful and terrible. Where do we say, well, you know, you could go from a religious perspective and go, well, God can do anything. Or um, what do you think? Well, first and foremost, I think what a tragedy for the family. Um, mm -hmm. How painful that must be. I, I can't, I can't imagine because when I think about it's the worst thing that could happen. Yeah, when I think about something like that happening to my own children, like I, I honestly just don't let myself think about it too much because yes. it hurts too much. So there's part where people can do a number of things out of, out of grief, out of pain, out of wanting to avoid such a terrible situation. So I, I don't blame the parents um, for, for wanting to have faith, for wanting to hope that this wasn't the reality for them, um, that this wouldn't be the reality for their family. Um, so I feel like there's a huge amount of compassion that I feel for for the the family but for friends as well like people in their community that they they don't want to they don't want a child to die like that's so tragic um and we talk about believing in in a god who is powerful enough that he created all things that he sustains all things so i don't think that it's outside of christian I mean, faith to hope for that a lot of the lives of these people is completely bathed in, mm. in religion, right? Yeah. In kind of a, a view of the world that is dictated by, mm. by I would think, right and wrong. In mm -hmm. this case, mm -hmm. I, my understanding, by 
like the presence of the spirit or not uh, by miraculous Mm -hmm. signs, wonders, all these kinds of things. So they are acting in, you know, an appropriate way. Well, right in line with that. In in Mm -hmm. the context that they're in. I mean, I was was sort of thinking about, well, first of all, I I would echo that. You know, just how incredibly sad that that is. And you mm-hmm. know, and death is just so painful to see firsthand. And I've only seen that with adults, you know. So I think to lose mm-hmm. a child, I could I also couldn't imagine the pain of it. Um, and I, I would think that the parents would be in a very desperate place. Um, but we were talking before about how, um, what do we say, people are better than their theology. theology. You know, and I think that this is sort of this a case. really painful application. Yeah. Um, that... Yeah. Um, know people are also stronger than their theology so although their, the- their theology might have been felt like it was lining up when they were talking about the belief that this girl would come back right. from the dead it's not the case um but they're gonna they will find in time i believe that they are stronger than that limited belief yes yes so in time well put. they probably will move to a place where they realize that at this time they needed to hold on to that mm-hmm um, but they'll get to a place that's stronger where they recognize that it was sort of an act of desperation to hold on to it. And it's not that God failed or that they failed. It's just that that wasn't, that's not how the yeah. universe works. Well, and I think so. that it's, it's hard to try to find those balances. I know I've seen personally with, with a few cases, people who have been sick with, um, with things like cancer and are unwilling for, for a long time to consider anything other than healing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, I haven't been there. So mm-hmm. it's, it's really hard for me, for me to judge. And what's hard is unfortunately in, in the cases I'm thinking of the person who was sick ended up dying mm-hmm. and there, there is something that's, that I think in, in one sense is, is so much more painful when, you then are thinking about how, how God or your faith has not lived up to this expectation of healing. Mm. Um, and I think you can see those, those tangents into, into this specific story where I, I wonder at where, where there's place for that family to have grief because in talking to people in their community, like is, do they now not have a way that they can talk about faith, about God, without it being that God failed them, mm-hmm. which I, I don't believe to be the case. Where, um, where can they engage with the, the rawness of this? Mm-hmm. Because it, it is such a raw truth that... Well, yeah, and to acknowledge that yeah. pain and that sorrow and that grief in a really meaningful way and, and to not tie it to that God chose not to act. Mm-hmm. Like There's the, a... They, the, the concept, there, there's a great Well, it's article. also who it's written by is very interesting as well. What's that? Who the article's written by, Kate Bowler. Yeah. And she, in that column, which is in the Washington Post, it was a couple of days before Christmas, uh, 2019. And um, she talks about, she's, Kate Bowler, by the way, did a PhD dissertation on, um, I believe it's PhD, she's at Duke University now, mm-hmm. but uh, on what's called the prosperity gospel. And so she, for years, she went... Um, from church to church, mostly United States, but she has Canadian connections as well, and to churches where the idea is you, you won't be sick if you have proper faith, you won't be poor if you have proper faith, and she has so she had 
really, really good background in that stuff. She happened to get sick with cancer mm. at the same time. Well, and while she was writing her dissertation, she was having some issues with her arms. That's right. So mm. she ended up having mm. to have, I think, her husband like type out huge portions of her dissertation because mm. she couldn't use her arms. Right. And they like prayed for her at these mm. services and stuff. Yeah, and, so and she said what, that it was, was really... She, was she in investigating this like... That because she shared these beliefs? No, no. Or it was because no. she, she was, did not. She was looking at it yeah. as more objective okay, to say, yeah. like, what, what's what's at mm -hmm. the heart of these? Yeah. But what's was, the draw here? She what? was sympathetic yeah. to it, but mm -hmm. she was also, what I mean is, she didn't just sit there and tell people how dumb mm. they were. Or yeah. No, she looked at the yeah. history, like, where it came though, from. Like, with her own sickness or yes. even with her arm. And mm -hmm. Some people would say, well, the reason your mm -hmm. arm is like that is you're not believing. And then when mm -hmm. she got cancer, after her dissertation, mm -hmm. became a book called Blessed, which is really good. Mm -hmm. um, well, then she ran to write another book. Some, she, she made a point of saying, in extreme cases, people that I'd been in some prosperity gospel churches with contacted me to basically tell me the reason I have cancer is mm -hmm. that I spoke against the prosperity, like, mm -hmm. against these churches. Mm -hmm. Um, so she's had quite a, but this article, she, here's what she um, talks about the distinction. It is why I was interested in bringing it up, is the distinction is one of hope. Like, what does hope mean? Does hope mean that we won't get sick? Does hope mean that we won't have tragic things happen? And so she says, Christians historically understand themselves as a people of hope. But for many populist Christians, that's a little bit of her way of saying prosperity gospel stuff, hope is an unstoppable power. They believe it can make poor people rich and sick people well. Hope, they believe, can bend reality and produce miracles. And so if you're someone who's believing in God properly in this understanding, serving God properly in mm -hmm. the case of this one we're talking about here, then God must bless me with this good outcome. And so well, that's just not how life it's a failure works. of understanding hope. It, sound, it sounds like it's a good, a good way to make people stop talking um, as well. Uh, yeah. Right? It's a, good, it's a good way to... Shush people. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and I thought a, a couple of things. Like, my, my first thought when I was reading this stuff was a bit about from the pastoral perspective. Like, I can understand the mother being, you know, can we pray that this doesn't happen, that, that mm -hmm. maybe she's not dead or that she comes back to the life? But this is the, the entire church saying this. But well, and at what point does the pastor, like, yeah. I understand as a pastor, uh, you know, you've had this request. Can we pray for a resurrection? Um, and I can understand sort of saying, okay, well, let's, let's do that and or let's do that for now and then figure out a way pastorally to move into talking about grief um i mean i've been a chaplain uh, at a hospital where a four-month-old had died and the, the the birth mother who actually wasn't with the child at the time um you know was holding her now dead child who she hadn't seen in a, in a couple months and turned to me and said would you would you baptize it uh, and my theological training had not prepped me for that question. And to me, the only response was, well, of, of, of course, yeah, I'm going course. to baptize the, the dead child. But for me, it was a pastoral response of how do you handle that? And I know um, Ken and I have uh, friends in common who went through uh, a loved one suffering with cancer. And the church tried to be helpful, but there were people within the church who had that sort of, if we just pray enough, if we just pray right, if we just like, pray hard enough, then don't think that this is, gonna end this is not going to end because with death. That's it's a failure only itself. going to yeah. end in, in life. Right. And the there's, pastoral there's of leadership of the church. Of this kind of thinking. Yeah, too. and the pastoral leadership of the church certainly went there as well. And not only did the person end up dying, but it really caused a ripple within that whole family, within the church community, because of that, well, then you attitude. need to find ex Ken's explanations. To it than I am, but it, it, yeah, it, it produced it was, lasting damage. That, yeah, on that was never. But I mean, yeah, I even encountered damage. some of this theology myself when I had um, a cancer scare a few years ago, and I ended up needing several surgeries. 
but there were people who expressed that it was an issue of my faith. Right. And I'm like, no, no, I'm pretty sure that's not actually the case. Yeah. And we're, were in opposition to me getting the surgeries that I ultimately got that stopped me from getting cancer. And I'm like, cause they're like, we should be able to pray this away. And right. I'm like, I'm not risking the life of like my children growing up without a mother, my husband mm-hmm. without a wife. Um, I consider these surgeries a miracle. The fact that they found this because it should never have been found. That's, that's a miracle. This is healing for me. Mm-hmm. And there was pushback for that. And I thankfully, in a way, like I had a lot of very good support. And so it didn't, like that didn't shake me, but it almost kind of shaked me that I still encountered that. Right. You did. I I was there for some of that. And I've had it in my own family. There's some illness on my wife's side of the family that is genetic and has uh, terrible, terrible implications down the line. And I've had well-meaning people come to me and say, um, you know, your your um, mother-in-law doesn't need to be sick. You know, if you just had the right... Mm-hmm. And and to try to communicate to somebody the pain that that causes. Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. Because they, I think they're coming in thinking they mean well. I think so. But there's, like, I, I can speak from o- only my own experience. Like, hearing hearing those comments was... Although I think I had a, uh, had a lot of like a strong base and a lot of other support, but it was still crushing because I'm like, I I don't need to to take this gamble with my life. Right. Well, like God know. has given like yeah. I viewed well, and they're kind of medical, calling you a failure. Right? Yeah, you, yeah. Don't, you don't need that to be judged. Like, yeah. it's, not, it's not like a time. Yeah. Well, and, and there doesn't was need to be a suggestion. Yeah. No. of your faith's strength or your. Whatever it is yeah. they believe brought this about. But again, this doesn't have to be religious. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it was this can be really some kind of yes. remedy, mm-hmm. some kind of, yeah. well, you just need to do mm-hmm. this. This works for everything. This worked for me. Mm-hmm. And the same kind of things can. So it's not necessarily only the religious side that I'm interested in thinking about. It's how we do this to one another, right? Yeah. And yeah. Sort of mm-hmm. else in your oh, state. no, I was just going to say, like, the, and it's hard because I think that there's, there's a lot of good intention, at least the way that I experienced it was, it was well meant. But it was incredibly offensive and unhelpful. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the people in the case that you're talking about, and I, I think from what you guys have said about the one you just mentioned or referenced, the people in question never changed tune. No, I don't think like so. You could I, sit I, with I, people and say, "Do you know how much this hurts me?" I Do believe, you know how, and literally, it's like, "Well, why wouldn't you don't want to be well?" Or so, you, you well, know, and I think the fact that I chose to go along, like with with my doctors. And like it was an entire team of doctors. My my gastroenterologist when I when I was diagnosed was like, these results were so abnormal. Hmm. I had the pathology checked three times. I had a team of doctors all look over this, and we don't have another. Like there is one option. It is to do this surgery and to do it now. And I think the fact that I chose to go with that was actually really offensive to to these people that had had that that comment. And I, I think it really damaged their perspective on my faith. Mm-hmm. Ricky, I, 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 all I'm wondering is I, I don't know how, um, uh, I don't even know what the word would be. Um, it's not, not a piousness, but it, the question that would come back is, well, do you not believe faith could make mountains move? Yeah. Right. I think that that is something that, that's a, that's a hard tension to have because there are times where I go, God, did I need to just trust that this wasn't going to be the case, that you would heal me? And Ultimately, was it an act of, of doubt that I got these surgeries instead of praying for God 
to heal me. I don't, it, it felt like, it felt like the discovery of, for me, these abnormal cells that were turning cancerous. It, and my doctor was like, this, we should not have found this. It was a random biopsy. Everything looked fine. Like he was shocked. And that felt like God's healing to me. Totally. And yeah. so, but it's, it's a hard thing because yeah. I've heard people who have been like, I have no explanation other than faith for why Whatever. this got healed. Like yeah. it, this was on a scan two months ago. It's not on a scan sure, now. There's stories. Yeah. And I just, I don't know where that tension lies. Yeah. I, I was just, I, I would say that like um, the universe is not in order. You know, and I think that we're very afraid of that reality. And um, people work very hard to push back against it. You know, that people get sick and some get well and some don't. You know, mm-hmm. and right. terrible things happen to children and people don't have what they need. You know, so the universe is not in order. And yet we have this idea that somehow it can be or should be or, or sort of it really is if you just work hard enough. And... Um, I think that what we need as far as community is that we need to be with one another as we all are on this journey mm-hmm. together in this disordered place. Well, there, there's, and, and that's yeah, sure. for me, that's kind sure. of more, that's, it's not, I wouldn't even say, and that's the miracle. I would say that's something that's significant, you know, as we move through this, the pain of life and there mm-hmm. is a lot of pain in life, um, but there's also a lot of joy, you know, and sometimes they're not in the measures that we'd like, but like we have one another I, I, I know and, it, on the journey, right? What, so to give back to like when I was a pastor and I was a chaplain as well, a volunteer chaplain at the hospital, I would experience this in pastoral work, not so much chaplaincy, in fact, not at all. Uh, so Ken, what you're talking about, this like being with one another even in and through these difficult circumstances. Yeah, like sort of accepting the idea that um, if we just could somehow unlock the secrets right things would work right. so much better for everyone right. all so the time I, so i go to a hospital to visit someone someone who is dying and the family doesn't want the person to die this would be older people as well mm-hmm. particularly if they're not like really really old right and i would go in as a minister and i so i would say i would go in with a sense of prayer i'm asking god uh, uh, you know help me to be present here and to have you know some kind of positive impact just with and you walk in and and if you ha- if you have people around you and again, not saying that people shouldn't pray for a miracle or for extraordinary things to happen, but it's the it's the hierarchy that happens. And I would go in if if other people are like, we're going to pray that this person gets healed and doesn't die of cancer. And even though the doctor said there's nothing else we can do now, we're going to. So then I walk in as pastor, and I'm feeling a call not to do that, but to simply be there, mm-hmm. and in a sense to accept this person is dying. Mm-hmm. And my call is to be fully present in this moment to discover something more hopeful than outcome here. Mm-hmm. It's a terribly difficult call, but it is something that, and I would, oh, I would feel that sense of like, because I would pray and we would at times even ask for healing, not, not saying that that, but that awareness that what, is it, what does it mean for me to have hope in a circumstance? And so often, I, like there was never a time the the children things were the most difficult. Ken mm-hmm. um, Ken Bell refers to being a chaplain as well, and I have some of the same stories where I went and you know there's a stillbirth or something, and they call the chaplain because the mom can't let go of the baby. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so the chaplain comes in to to help, and and you're just you're just kind of there's so many devastating things, but somehow I'm not like for me it would be a faith thing, but it doesn't mm-hmm. matter. Um, 
even in places of great difficulty, you can be aware of hope. You can be aware of, or, or life, I would say. And sometimes the kind of constant demand that this thing work out, that I'm not sick anymore, that my loved one doesn't, that this does, is actually, a, to some degree, a failure of that hope. It's, it has to be this way, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm not saying that with, like, praying for loved ones who are dying, particularly their children, mm -hmm. back to your thing about the pain. But that call, that sense of, like, how do we get to the greater call, right? Yeah, so I, think that's, I think that is true, that that um, coming back to um, having hope in those bleak situations is is important. Yeah. It's what it's about. And um, I think as well that we, people have more strength within them than they know in so many cases. And so to say, you know, it has to be that that person's healed or that I'm healed or that this crappy thing doesn't happen right. to me, um, you actually have the strength to stand yeah. even when that crappy thing does happen so uh, i think that's important to the thing that to. the thing that you never ever wanted the to thing happen. that we're trying so even hard if it's to push not it. like and, and it's not that's that removed it's good. from the death it's of a bad. child because yeah. that's mm -hmm. the extreme that's but <coughs> the loss yeah. of a job the well i mean stephen colbert yeah. talks yeah. about that in his interview with anderson cooper and yeah. cooper where he talks about how like the thing that i wish had never had happened is is something that has been so formative mm -hmm. and um well put Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think of that for, for me personally, like, did, did I want to mm -hmm. get this diagnosis when my son was 12 weeks old and then go through the next year of having three surgeries and not being able to pick him up for a month? And like, did, did I want that? No, um, mm -hmm. I would never have chosen that. Um, but there are parts of it, things that like ways that I, I began to understand who I was and strength that I found that I did not know that I had. Mm -hmm. um, and seeing the beauty of my family and my community rally and gather to... Because I literally had times where Keith wouldn't be around or Isabel wouldn't be around, and I, I had people like, like Tierney came over and would just hold Joshua for me because I couldn't hold him. And I couldn't be by myself. And to have, like, what a gift that was to, mm. to have people come. And my parents, like, moved in with us for, like, a month after every surgery because I couldn't hold my child. I, like, my newborn, I learned to, like, crawl into his crib when he would cry because I do couldn't ever, pick him up. Do you ever still, like, it's interesting because we suffer losses in life and, you know, we can feel some sense of redemption or... or you just pick up the positive nature of some of this. Do you ever still kind of look back and, and lament? Like, you didn't hold him in those times. No. That, I, like, there I, is something you give up, right? It, we can't well, there, deny the loss. There, there were a lot of losses that year um, because it was stuff like I spent my maternity leave with, which for with my first child was was so much about just doing so many things with her and my entire, like with the exception of the first couple of months of my maternity leave, which were already slightly traumatic because Joshua was hospitalized for three weeks because he was six and a half weeks early and was like, he wasn't developed enough. So like there was already like that, that kind of traumatic start to that year. And then I was diagnosed when he was 12 weeks old, my first surgery when he was five months old. And there, I, I look at, at the things I spent that, I spent that year recovering. Right. I didn't do Not stuff. I didn't do stuff with him. Yeah. I, I just, tried to heal 
Yeah. Um, I, and it wasn't just the surgeries. It was trying to keep up with uh, breastfeeding him, which I kind of crazily did f- until after the second surgery. And then it was complications after the second surgery where I was back in hospital and getting like it, the entire year just got sucked up and disappeared. His first birthday party was like, I called my family. I'm like, I think I can manage this. Come over to my house. We're having pizza. And I feel like he got robbed of of stuff. And I mean, he's fine. But he didn't. He's fine. He didn't. No. But like emotionally, I, f- I feel like yeah. I got robbed well, of a, stuff. It's the thing we do to ourselves that we look mm-hmm. back and you're saying something? Um, well, it's, I think it's, it's an interesting thing to talk about this, this sense. And of course, we're not going to this with saying like how, how ignorant or terrible or something these people are who were praying in this way. We're kind of going with the Kate, Kate Bowler stuff and asking, is there a way to have a deeper sense of hope? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, that's helpful mm-hmm. and certainly hopeful um, because it is astounding how much pain is around. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, yeah. And the denial of it, that's another thing, right? The, the denial of the pain either by saying, well, it, we'll just, it'll yeah. just flip the other and way now. Yeah, I think right? hope and, and hope without acknowledging the loss isn't really the no, real thing. It can't be. It's sort of like a, it's a Band-Aid, yeah. right? So like acknowledging the loss and yeah. the painful stuff and then hoping there's, wow, that's, there's some real strength in that. Yeah. Producer Rick. It's a bit slogany and, um, you know, uh, snack culture-y, but what Ken was saying, and I'm trying to remember what it was back, if people can rewind and listen, but it, it just, all I could think was like, yeah, sometimes things suck, but everybody's kind of doing their best and we all were just walking each other home, right? Mm-hmm. And that's all these things we've been talking about. Like, you can be right, but is your, you know, do you want to be in relationship or do you want to be right? And you were talking about bridging that gap, not putting it's that so distance, staying in relationship. You just quoted a spiritual master. <laughs> I or know. you just wrote yeah, the same quote. Yeah. So you wrote the same quote. You know yeah. what that happens? You write something brilliant or you think something yeah. brilliant, and then you realize somebody else said it first, and you're like, well, it's equal then, because yeah. we both thought that. <laughs> that issue has never come just, up with me. Rick just quoted um, <laughs> Meister Eckhart, who yeah. said something along the lines of, be compassionate, mm-hmm. everyone you meet is engaged in a great struggle. Mm-hmm. And I think that this, over this whole conversation, to, mm-hmm. to be that, but that would entail at times at least being open to drop our ideas yes. of what is proper. In other words, <coughs> I know what this person needs. And oh, it just be always, there with it them. It always feels like you're serving, I suppose, mm-hmm. to do that. Like our friends who came to you mm-hmm. and others to my family and did that. These aren't bad people, but something was missing. Mm-hmm. That they were unable to drop their worldview. It was what was dominating the thing. And so I, w- I even saw in circumstances, thinking back to those, those situations, where the person would go away feeling really, really sad. I could see mm-hmm. they were really, well, really in pain because mm-hmm. I hadn't responded like mm-hmm. they thought I would. And so that kind of call to think, what does it mean for me to drop my ideas, my concepts, my idea of God, my idea of healing, my idea of, to simply be present here with this person? Mm-hmm. And that there may be some hope discovered in that. Be compassionate. Uh, everyone we meet, everyone you meet is engaged uh, I think in I a got great a little struggle. excited. Back to Paris. Paris. <laughs> Thank you. No, play, play her out. Play her out. Again, it's me just guessing. I have this. no idea how much, but I love putting this one. Oh, the pepper. Four, five, six, seven, oh. eight. She loses nine, character a couple times. Ten, yeah, she? you heard it just 11, there. Six. 11. Yeah. So I love 11, 11. So it's good luck. 
<laughs> is, it, is, it? is that good luck? 11, 11, 11? 11 grinds of pepper? That's just Go her mashing of a metal thing into a non-stick <laughs> pan. It's just, I'm like, oh. Well, thank you very much, everybody. <laughs> thank you. And thanks for joining to in this Wood Thanks to Woods Distillery. <laughs> <laughs> and to Fabio Martini. Yes. And we'll talk to you again soon.